So I just want you guys to think about this for a second. I'm going to ask this question. Have you personally witnessed a miracle or, or do you even know of someone who has witnessed a miracle secondhand or whatever it may be? So are you or somebody you know are aware of a miracle secondhand or directly perhaps? I want to see if, if you have, shoot up your hand. If you know somebody who has even well, that's, that's, that was not what I, what I was expecting, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because this, this, the stats on this are, are pretty, pretty high. Uh, is, it says that half of U.S. adults, 51%, said they believe that, um, that the miracles of the Bible has, has happened as they have described. So 51% of adults, more than half would say that what the Bible says about miracles, they believe that. Now, what really caught me for surprise, and this will really, you know, bake your biscuit here, is that 50% of doctors, doctors say that, that in their profession, they have witnessed firsthand a miracle. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Now, when asked whether miracles are possible today, two out of three Americans, 67% said yes, with 15% only saying no. The others were just not sure. And as it turns out, two out of five U.S. adults, 38%, say they have had such an experience. Uh, and it's, if, you, if you look at 38% of, of Americans who've said that they've had a direct experience of a miracle, that ends up to be 94 million people. 94 million. That's a lot. That's not like a few people. 94 million Americans. Almost 95 if you can average it out. But 90, it's 94 million 792,000. They, they say that, yeah, that they're convinced that God has, has performed one miracle for them personally. 94 million people in the United States. Now, I, I don't know. That sounds pretty frequent. Seems pretty frequent. Um, but yeah, so what do I mean, though, precisely when I say miracle? And I didn't give Brent time to put this up, so I'm just going to read. This is what Dr. Richard L. Perel, uh, he's a philosophy professor at Western Washington. This is how he defines a miracle. He says a miracle is an event, one, that's brought about by the power of God, two, that's temporary, three, an exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. I'm going to re repeat that again so we know what a miracle is or get at least a good running definition. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God is acting in history. That's what he says. Now, when you read the New Testament, something interesting happens is that you'll notice that Jesus and the apostles, miracles happen with a lot frequency, don't they? In, in, in the uh, New Testament, when you're looking at this, uh, and it's, it's almost like they have this kind of power at the whim to just make miracles happen. Look at Acts. I mean, they, these, I mean, the apostles and Jesus, they were healers. I mean, they could heal somebody, Johnny, on the spot. Just boom, you were healed kind of thing. You see this really clearly in Acts 5, 15 through 16 and following. So that even carried out the stick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Then, so he, his shadow is falling on people and they're being healed. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Pretty amazing. Well, check out this account with the, the same things going on with Paul here. It's very interesting reading this. This is from Acts 19, 11, 12. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that, so he, it's, it's through him. He has the ability to heal Johnny on the spot. I know Johnny's not here, but I'll be using his name a lot, I guess. Johnny's in my mind, <laughs> a worship leader. So by the way, Matt did a terrific job. Thank you for filling in, Matt. Beautiful worship as always. And so he, he, here we have Johnny on the spot. He says, so yeah, he is working through the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin. So we're talking about cloth that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, that does not happen today. You know, it's not like you can pass around the preacher's iPhone and get healed or whatever, anything he's touched or whatever it is. And I know that there are televangelists who claim that they can do this. But if you watch any reasonable documentary that's professionally researched, you'll find out that these guys are kind of shysters. He's televangelist. And there's a lot of trickery involved. They use their own forum. And uh, they actually, uh, people that are severely handicapped or have illnesses from birth, they will intentionally have their security skip over those people so they can do kind of psychosomatic kind of miracles on people that have migraines. And you research this, it's incredible. We do not have faith healers today at all. Like, like, I mean, not that they were like faith healers necessarily back then. They could heal on command, but some of them struggled with their, with their faith at various points. If there were such healers today, why don't they visit all the hospitals? Go to the hospitals and you just start healing people and preaching the gospel. We know that doesn't happen. That's because, that's because of it not being true. That's not what people can do today. Preaching to hundreds and going to each hospital, could you imagine going to the University of Utah, just healing every person up there? If, if someone had that ability, they would do it and preach the gospel, as did Peter and Paul. They didn't have hospitals in the same way we have today, but that's what they did. They would go to places where people were sick, and they'd heal them all. It doesn't happen today. We know that. Now, I want to be clear. You might be hearing me saying, oh, well, I guess Pastor Nate doesn't believe in miracles or healings. I'm not saying that. I believe in miracles and healings. And I'm going to give you guys a look at these two books here, uh, filled, chock full of these, of these miracles, thousands of pages on them. It's, it's amazing. Hundreds of pages. And so, uh, yeah, people can be healed today. People can have a miracle. But here's my point, and I, I don't want you to miss this. This is my point, is that there is no spiritual gift of healing people Johnny on the spot kind of thing. You can just go boom, all right, you're healed. You know, boom, kind of like you see them fake on the, the way that televangelists do. That does not happen today. And so we're going to see why that is. Why, why is it? I mean, this is a question that skeptics have. Why is it you have these accounts with Paul and Peter? They're healing people left and right. Boom, boom, boom. That's not happening today. So what explains the difference from back then and now? Why is there a difference? And we're going to see Paul, Paul talks about the purpose and function of miracles. And that will tie into the larger teaching of the purpose and function of miracles today. As we're going to see in the rest of the chapter in Paul's ministry, describing it to the Romans in Romans 15, 17 through 33. My hope and my prayers will finish this chapter today. Lord willing. 
He says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now you, you read this and it sounds like uh, Paul is kind of bragging, doesn't it? You read that, like, that doesn't sound like Paul, right? He sounds like, it's like, I'm just bragging, oh, look at what I've done, I'm so amazing. Now, this is a unique uh, translation of the ESV. The ESV is a very good, uh, faithful Bible translation. It, I agree with a lot of it. I, you know, the Bible is written in Koine Greek. We can translate it today. We know what it means. I can translate it. It's, it's like translating any other language. And sometimes you have suboptimal translations. This is an example of a suboptimal translation. A more literal translation, the young literal translation, you can get this from the NIV, but it says, I have then boasting in Christ Jesus in the things pertaining to God. Very different. And uh, most scholars grant that this is the best interpretation. That's why any translation you have besides the ESV will put the boasting in Jesus Christ working through Paul rather than Paul saying, I'm like proud or something of what I'm doing. And so it's just a translational issue. He's saying, I'm not even, the whole point of the passage in Greek is, I can read it, is he's boasting in Christ. That's how it reads in Greek. I'm boasting in Jesus, not myself. And that is definitely a suboptimal, unfortunate translation from the ESV, I might add, which is otherwise, I mean, one of my favorite translations. I love the ESV. We have them here at our church. We give them away. Verse 18 says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So when someone gets saved, they're saved by faith and grace alone, but their life changes. That's, we're not saved by obedience because no one's perfectly obedient to the commands and laws of God. No one can be. But when a person receives grace and is born again and has salvation, their life changes. And that it changes from someone who's turning away from God and Christ to turning towards them. And this transformation occurs. That's why salvation and obedience are usually tied together. Because salvation by grace and faith alone produces a life of fruitfulness and saving people. By word and deed, so by Paul's preaching and by his lifestyle. That's how he does it. By not just lifestyle evangelism, but by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders... So they're authenticating his message by the power of signs and wonders, miracles, essentially, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lillicum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I built on someone else's foundation. He wants to not... He wants to go to places where the gospel has not been spread. He has a heart of evangelist for the lost, as we should all want to spread the gospel to where Christ has not been fully established in that area or region. Verse 21, But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who will never heard of him will understand. He's wanting to spread the gospel to people who would not understand it so that they can be saved and have eternal life in Christ. Verse 22, This is the reason why I have been so often hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I since have longed for many years to come to you, to, the, to Rome. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. That's where he wants to set out to go. And to be helped in my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he wants to hang out at Rome and go to Spain. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. They, 
Jerusalem was, unfortunately, a very poor area, and, and Jewish Christians at the time were not really supported out there, and so it was a lot of poverty, and so he's getting money from the Gentiles and giving it to the saints in Jerusalem at this point. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Archaea have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, of which there were many. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessings of being in the church through the Jewish people, the, the blessings of Abraham that blesses the nations, they ought to also be of service in them in material things. Hey, the Jewish people, and Jesus was Jewish, he blessed you guys. So, yeah, give back a little. That's kind of what he's saying here. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what I have has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he is finding satisfaction in Christ, even though we're going to read he's under intensive persecution and prison at this point. He's finding satisfaction in Christ in the midst of his trials. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Be praying for me. He's asking for prayer here, as we should be asking for other saints and brothers and sisters. we asking them for prayer when we're going through something hard. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and think about this. So he could do amazing miracles and people pass around a handkerchief and be healed. I mean, so God is working definitely in the life of Paul. I think we would agree with that. But he could not get out of prison at this point. He was in captivity in Judea and his life was being threatened. And even when he, we'll see when he goes to Rome, he's still in captivity. So here you have Paul asking for prayer a miracle worker, he can't, get, he can't miracle his way out of prison. And so, yeah, I mean, even, even someone like the apostle has real problems. It's not like he can just snap his fingers, do a miracle, and get out of prison. That's not what's happening. And in fact, when he's asking for prayer, this prayer, people argue, scholars say that in many cases, it wasn't really fulfilled. It, never, it was partially answered. Some say it was fully answered maybe later on. The point is everybody agrees that this prayer that he's asking for, this happens years and years later to be answered. So he has to wait a considerable amount of time, being a constant threat of death, which he was delivered from death from the captivity in Judea. And then he's also in prison. So he's in trial. He's under, he, he's under prison. He is, he is in jail for years and years and years. Debatably, it takes forever for this prayer to be answered, if it gets answered at all. Well, some church fathers say that Paul did make it to Spain eventually. People do dispute that and say this prayer was never answered. Here's a point. It took forever. It took forever and ever for this prayer to be answered. He is in prison and suffering for years and years and years. And so, yeah, it's, people think, like, how could this happen to a guy who just passes off his cloth and people are healed? I mean, couldn't he just snap his fingers and, the, you know, the jail uh, doors could just pop right open and everybody just falls asleep and forgets about it? No, he couldn't do that. And this shows us something about the nature of Christian prayer is it's not like if you have enough faith or if you think positive thoughts that you're definitely going to get whatever you want at the snap of a finger. That is not how prayer works. Prayer does not make God into a Coke machine where you can just manipulate him. You, you pray the right thing and you have enough faith and oh, it pops out. And you get your Coke in there. It's not that kind of tr transactional kind of thing. We cannot control and manipulate God like he's some sort of pagan deity. Like if I just have enough faith, if I'm really good enough, then I just get whatever I get, get from God, the Coke machine. That is not how it works. 
You cannot manipulate God by naming and claiming. I know people that like say, I'm going to declare that you're no longer going to have sickness in Jesus's name. Like you can just control God to do things while you're claiming and naming things. That is not how the Bible works. That is not how Christian prayer works. And so, yeah, Paul, the apostle who healed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people did not have that kind of authority to manipulate God. Why would you? Think about that for a second. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He begged God over and over, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And God said, no, my grace for you is sufficient. My power is made known in your weakness. God is not a genie in a bottle. You rub that bottle the right way and boom, you get whatever you want. So when we ask things for God in prayer, we're ultimately placing it finally in his hands and is trusting him in his sovereign hands and his will. I love how New Testament scholar Mickey Klink, who was a professor at mine at Biola, says, what makes the prayer Christian and not pagan is that God is not used to fulfill the desires of the person who prays, but rather the person who prays submits his or her will to the power and purpose of God. A Christian prayer is a paradox in that it seeks from God what one simultaneously surrenders to God. Surrenders to God. Asking from God, therefore, is also letting go. It is letting God be God over all things, even the things we want or need the most. And so when we pray, we're asking, we're, we're asking God for something. We're making God known our requests and desires at the same way, surrendering, handing it over to him, saying, you are Lord, I am not. I want this so bad, God, but at the end of the day, your will be done, not mine. I want my mom and dad to be healed of this, of this sickness or this ailment, but at the end of the day, Lord, they are in your hands. That is so hard to do. But that is what Christian prayer is all about. It's difficult to pray like that and trust it over into the sovereign hands of God. But that is the distinctive feature of biblical Christian prayer. Paul continues in the rest of the chapter, Romans 15, 32-33, so that by God's will, His sovereign will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Christian fellowship builds him up here. We can't, there's no lone ranger Christians. We have, to be, we have to support each other in fellowship. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The popular expression of God, or of Paul here through the Holy Spirit, saying that God is a God of peace. He brings peace in the greatest. He's saying that his life is being threatened and in prison. It's incredible. So, but the whole point here is his focus is on getting, even though he's in prison, he's focused on Spain. He's focused on bringing salvation. His main focus is the gospel and spreading the gospel of Christ. Salvation by grace and faith alone in Jesus Christ. By trusting in Jesus, we get forgiven of all of our sins. That is what he's focused on. And miracles are merely a tool or an instrument to bring it to the gospel. They're not the end of themselves. They're a means to authenticate. And, and it's kind of like God's stamp of, of approval saying, this, this, this gospel, this is, this is the real McCoy. This is it. Hey, this gospel message, because of these signs and miracles, this gospel message, this is legit. That's what miracles are functioning as. And so the main issue here is that, yeah, that's what he's saying here. And, that, you know, that generally this is going to jumpstart the early church and authenticate the gospel message. Some people think, well, there are uh, places in Africa 
in an Asia where there's no gospel message. You know, just, you know, you think of, you know, indigenous islands. And so some people have this idea, well, maybe there can be a healer there, like Paul was, you know, kind of Johnny on the spot healing, because that's, that's, you have to lay down the foundation and authenticate the gospel so that there could be healers today uh, in our time uh, that authenticate the gospel. So there could be healers today. Now, I don't personally take that viewpoint, but I mean, I, I, I've heard many pastors uh, flout that idea. And my issue is it's just a biblical text. It seems like the, the, the office of a healer is foundational, the Johnny on the spot healing, that that is foundational to the early church, establishing and building up the early church. And so it, it says here in Hebrews, by the way, and just so you know, like it could be that God does more miracles in those places. I, I, I readily grant that. And God does some miraculous things in the mission fields. Many missionaries have reported that. I'm not denying that for a moment, but I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, therefore there's an office of a healer because of act, uh, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4 and following. And then we're going to look at some of the passages here. But how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. Jesus and the apostles. That's what it's talking about. Jesus and the apostles. It was declared first by, by Jesus and the apostles. While, this is when God was working, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So when that message came through Jesus and his apostles, there were miracles that bore witness that gave God's stamp of approval to the foundational parts of the Christian church. And what's really interesting is that miracle signs and wonders are tied specifically to the apostolic office, to the office of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and scholars confirm this, that, that, that the ability to work miracles is tied explicitly to what the apostles did in their office in preaching. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. This is saying here that, yeah, this is, these miracles, this office of healers, this is tied to those apostles, to those who saw the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what the Bible will go on to teach, we're going to see this, is that Jesus is not making resurrection appearances anymore like he did in the first century. That's what made somebody apostle. It actually, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, by the way, it lays down the criteria to be an apostle. You know, when Matthias replaces Judas, so Judas, obviously, he killed himself. He was, it was kind of a, a bad dude there. And um, kind of a bad dude. Gosh, kind of. He was a bad dude. Betrayed Jesus. That's why no one names their kid Judas anymore. We, we know that. So, Matthias replaced Judas. The qualifications they lay down in the book of Acts, is that they have to see the risen Jesus. That's a qualification for an apostle. And, and you see this confirmed in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He's referring to the resurrection appearance on the road to Damascus. Have I not seen Jesus our risen Lord? Oh, wow. He's falling over here. All right. So... Yeah, he, that's what makes somebody an apostle. No one has seen the risen Jesus today. Jesus does not appear to people today. And we know that because the Bible tells us. Because, I mean, you might have a, an uncle in your family. It's always the uncle, right? That might say, I said, Jesus appeared to me last night. And so I, I'm an apostle. You never know what people are going to say. But the Bible actually tells us, 
tells us explicitly that the last resurrection visible appearance was to the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 8. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all. Now, the Greek word is eschatos here. It doesn't mean like last at the, as like the end of a list, but last, final, complete. It's where we get the word eschatology, which is end times. This is finished. It's over. Sayonara, sucker. It's done. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So, yeah, the idea is that, yeah, this is, this is it. And even Paul's appearance, I mean, it was untimely. It was not normal. It was irregular. It was, a, it, was, it was even surprising that Jesus appeared to him after he ascended. It's untimely. And so this is the last and final visible resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. And so there are no more apostles today because there's no more phys- physical appearances of the, of the resurrection like there was in the first century. Bible confirms that there are no more apostles today. There are no more prophets today. That's why when Paul is closing up the end of the church, he lays down offices of elders and deacons. No, none for apostles, none for prophets, because the foundational part of the church is laid by the apostles and the prophets, and you can't lay a foundation on a foundation on a foundation. That's not how it works. We're going to see this here in Ephesians 2.20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. They laid a once and for all foundation, talking about the Christian church being a building, and there's only one foundation to a building, not multiple. It doesn't build up into foundations and more foundations. And so this is not me putting God in a box. This is God telling us. This is God defining himself and how he works in the world today in this post-New Testament time period. So Paul is the very last here, and we see that. And so, yeah, there's no more apostles today. And so if there's no more apostles today... There's no more signs of the apostles, which is what? The office of healer and miracle worker. Miracles don't happen like they did in the New Testament. The Bible tells us why. It was laying the foundation of the Christian church. So the Christianity would expand to be the largest world religion. And it is today. And so, yeah, we're reading these passages in the New Testament about the founding of the church, the building of that foundational period. And you build the foundation very differently than you do the rest of the house. That's just how architecture works. That's how building a house works. And so people, you might be hearing me and saying, oh, wow, Pastor Nate doesn't believe in miracles today. He's weird. No, that's not what I'm saying. We should not go to the extreme conclusion of, okay, well, therefore there's no miracles today. I have, I have met many pastors, so skeptical, that have said there's no miracles today. You know, we watch all that, all that excess on television of televangelists. And so they go to this far bizarre conclusion as if there's no miracles today at all. I can re- recall sitting in a seminary prof- uh, class and a professor was lecturing to me. It was, it was uh, this, this guy did not believe in miracles today by the way he was talking. It was so profoundly interesting to me. Um, and people also say, yeah, there could be no demon possessions. People go really far with this, but... In this class, uh, he was talking about his own personal experience. He had twin boys, and it's very sad when they were young, they had huge cancer. Uh, I mean, they both had brain tumors. I mean, just huge tumors in their heads. They were going to die. Doctors like, there's your kids are. And so they would run the brain scans, and you see that these two twins, they both had the same massive tumor in both their heads. 
They prayed about it and go back, you know, a couple months later to check on the brain scan, see how the, the brain tumors are going. Brain tumors are gone. More than that, the doctors say, the doctors say that it was as if the brain tumors were never even there. And I'm like, oh, this is describing a miracle. This is pretty legit. <laughs> this medically documented miracle. Professor, my professor wrote in his um, journal that, uh, you know, wow, it's a miracle. He's like, and he's like talking to us now. He's like, no, I don't believe it's a miracle. You know, it could have been chance or I'm like, what? <laughs> your, your children were healed. What's it, what's it going to take, man? Seriously. So people, I mean, people get really stubborn about these mir- uh, miracles and they just, they, they pull the ultimate skeptic card. No matter what you show them, oh, that doesn't count. It's psychosomatic, you know? It's like, but you have medically documented evidence and if it's underlying physical disease, you can't just be healed by being psychosomatic. That's not how this works. And so, yeah, there are so many medically documented miracles that I was going to share and go over. And my wife actually cut me down on it. She's like, this sermon's getting way too long. People want to get to lunch, Nate. So I cut the miracles. But here, I mean, I, I got right here. This is a book of hundreds and hundreds of pages of medically documented miracles. I mean, this is incredible. There's so much evidence. In fact, I've been inspired to use it as one of my 50 proofs for God's existence. I was researching it all week like a, like a crazy person. And I've just, I've been just studying all these miracles. It's been so encouraging to my faith. And I want to, I, so I'm going to share now with you one of my favorite miracles. It's a long one, but it's, it's worth every minute. It's so amazing. And this is from uh, Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Miracles. Uh, this is what he writes. I'm going to read this account of Barbara Snyder. Now, my book talks a lot about documented miracles taking place, but the one that I investigated that absolutely blew me away the most was a woman by the name of Barbara Snyder. I interviewed Barbara at length. We had extensive medical records from her dating back many years in the Mayo Clinic and her other physicians. We had multiple credible eyewitnesses with no motive to deceive. We have two two of her doctors who were so blown away by what happened to her that they wrote about it in a book because they said, "I, I got to write about this unbelievable thing. So I'll tell you what what happened to Barbara. Barbara was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the Mayo Clinic. For the next several years, she just deteriorated, got worse and worse and worse. She was repeatedly hospitalized, repeatedly had surgeries, until ultimately she was in her bed dying on hospice. Other, uh, one of her physicians, Dr. Harold P. Adolf, a board-certified surgeon who preferred 25,000 operations in his career, he called Barbara, quote, one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. One of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. One of her lungs was non-functional. That the other was just inflated. At 50%, a a tube was inserted in her neck and oxygen was pumped from uh, um, canisters in her garage so that she could breathe. She lost control of her urination, her bowels, and she was legally blind. All she could uh, see were gray shadows and a feeding tube was inserted in her stomach. She hadn't walked in seven years, and so her legs had atrophied, and her muscles were shrunk, so she had no muscles to even walk. Okay? And her legs were atrophied. They were curled up like pretzels in the bed because of her illness. Her hands were flexed, so her fingers were touching her wrists, and her feet were permanently flexed and extended. Our parents met with doctors and they agreed there's, something, there's nothing more they can do medically. And they said next time she contracts pneumonia, uh, uh, a breach because of her lung situation, it was something that happened to her regularly. Um, they said, well, 
let's just let her go. It'll, it's, we're, just, we're just prolonging the inevitable, her inevitable death. Well, then one of uh, her friends knew of the situation, how bad it was, called uh, WMBI, which is a radio station in Chicago run by the Moody Bible Institute, a Christian radio station, obviously. And they said that they would announce to people uh, to pray for Barbara. And so they, had, uh, they knew people, she was really suffering, people knew this, and so they had at least a minimum of 450 people praying for her. They began to pray for Barbara. How do we know this? Because they sent letters telling her that they were praying for her. Real letters. The next thing I'm going to read to you is Barbara's account herself, how she describes it in her own terms. This is, and, and this is around the time where she's having the letters read to her. Her friends are at her house, and she's going to describe this moment when she was healed. And uh, this is in also Lee Strobel's book on miracles. Because this is what Barbara said. June 7th, 1981. I'll never forget it was a day like any other day for me that was one spent confined to a bed, unable to breathe on my own. Machine tubes in my neck, in my arms. Curled up my legs, were all curled up. I laid there trapped inside my own body is really how I felt. I had two friends over there, came over all the time, and they were from church. My church family never forgot me. So while, I was, while they were there, I remember everything they were reading to me. I mean, it's a pretty important day if you were healed. And then Barbara describes this prompting from God to just get up out of her bed. Just get up all of a sudden. She says, all of a sudden, God just told me to get up and walk, and my friends got really quiet. I know, uh, but he really did tell me to get up and walk. So I, I, I just, no one else could hear it, but she just felt this prompting. She says, run, get my, get my family. I want them to be here. And my friends all were sudden and they jumped. And I jumped up too. I was so excited, I couldn't wait for anyone. And I literally jumped out of my bed. And this is where you'd almost know, you'd have to know me, it's totally impossible that I even do that. So this is... This time, I remember just reaching up and pulling up my oxygen off my neck. I remember that. And jumping out of my bed, and I looked, I saw my feet were flat on the ground, just like everyone else's, which, is, which sounds normal, but not for me. I had foot drops so, so badly, I couldn't even wear slippers on my feet. They were so curled up and emaciated. So when I jumped out and went flat on my feet, I was so amazed. I stood staring at my feet. When I did that, I jumped like this, and then I saw my hands and my feet were open, and, then, and, and they never opened. And so they were all open. I stood there staring at them, and then it dawned on me for the first time because I was, she was so caught up by just her body being able to function properly, she had forgotten that she got her vision back. <laughs> I was perfectly fine. I was just staring for a little while, feeling what it felt like to look and see me, and it turned to the women. We all started jumping and screaming and thanking the Lord. I remember I didn't understand anything except there was a time when I was really, really sick, and, I, and then all of a sudden I was well again, and I knew it was all God. This is what Strobel goes on to comment about just, the, just the, the, the facts of the case here. The facts are unbelievable. Barbara was instantly and thoroughly healed, and her eyesight was immediately restored. Her lungs immediately affected normal. Her mother came in running into the room. And fell to her knees and began to feel her calves and said, your muscles are back. The muscles and tone returned instantly. People, as atheists, always say, I want to see a limb come back. Well, muscle coming back instantaneously is pretty good. I don't know about you. To her leg to come back so she can walk after seven years of not walking. 
Her father came in and hugged her and then began waltzing with her around the room. Well, this is Sunday. This happens to be uh, Sunday, and, and there's a church service, and so she goes to the church service, which is Wheaton Wesleyan Church in suburban Chicago. And they were holding a service there and, at night, and the pastor says, hey, okay, well, any announcements? And there comes Barbara waltzing down the aisle for everyone to see her. People were shocked to see her. She had always been in a wheelchair, curled up and just emaciated. And people, out of joy, just started singing Amazing Grace saying, I once was blind and now I see. And the next morning, she went to one of her doctors, Dr. Thomas Marshall, who was an internist for 30 years, and he saw her walking down the corridor, and this was his first thought. Oh, she's dead, and she became a ghost. That's the only way I can account for this. He says, this, and this is his response, this is medically impossible. So this is God's instant and complete healing a barber in one miraculous moment, not over time, immediately, and there's no natural explanation for this. This is not some sort of, you know, people say, oh, it's spontaneous remission. No, it, it never came back. It was done in 1981. It's older than me. So this was instantaneous. Eyesight returning, uh, her lungs being reinflated, her muscles coming back in an instant, and this happened over 30 years ago. And now Barbara is married, and she, uh, have, she's married to a pastor of a little church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And her doctor, this is what her doctor wrote about her. I mean, they wrote, write about her in books. She says, I have never witnessed anything like this before or since and consider it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God performing a true miracle. Now, this is amazing evidence for the truth of Christianity, obviously. It's very amazing. And God does wonders, though, still to this day. People think, well, I guess God's just not, you know, working. But no, he does wonders still. He does miracles still. And that's why, yeah, if you call me, you want me to pray? I have no problem praying a miracle for you. We, we, we place it in God's hands. I, I can't control God. No one can. He's the Lord. That's why he's called that. But Ultimately, God does do miracles today. There's nothing in the, the New Testament that prohibits this. There's nothing that says demon possessions don't occur today. There's nothing that says that. And so I have no problem praying for people, laying hands on people, praying that they would be healed. God can do it today. And he does this wonder. He does more wonders every day. Every day he does a wonder. You know that? God does a wonder every single day. And that is the wonder of forgiving someone of their sins and causing them to be born again. That is one of the greatest wonders. That is the wonders of miracles. They authenticate and point to that ultimate greatest wonder of salvation in Christ. To have your sins forgiven is even more wonderful than having a limb come back or to be healed of cancer. This is what Jesus Christ himself says in two places, Luke 5, 20 through 24. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees began questioning, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So impossible to imagine that someone's sins could be all forgiven. Many people I talk to struggle with that idea. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk up? Someone who can't walk, who's, just, who's handicapped here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. So the man rose. So what's harder, to get your sins forgiven or to be healed? 
Well, we know it's to have your sins forgiven because in order to have your sins forgiven, it was much harder. It cost Jesus his life. He suffered. He took hell in our place on the cross. He satisfied the infinite wrath of God on that cross, absorbed it, absorbed the pain for every single one of our sins, millions and billions of sins. That is much harder than just Jesus just forgiving uh, or healing somebody rather. That is the greatest and most important wonder ever. What the gospel promises each and every one of you, which you receive by faith, that all your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped away. And this is why Paul focused on the gospel more than just being, you know, just obsessed with just miracles. Miracles are merely a tool to authenticate that we have forgiveness and eternal life by faith and grace in Jesus Christ alone. In many ways, it's harder for me to believe in that my sins are forgiven, given, given that we all know our thoughts and we're all sinful. It's, just, it's harder for me to believe that sometimes and even miracles. It's, it's, we struggle with that, that God can unconditionally love me, Nate Taylor, and forgive me of all my sins. That's harder for me to believe sometimes that God, but he does, and he gives us miracles to verify it. And this is what Mark 10, 25 to 27 is comparing mir- a miracle, a miraculous event. It says that the, that the gospel, the wonder of salvation is greater is more spectacular than any miracle. So it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? He said, well, with man, it's impossible because try fitting a camel through an eye of a needle. It wasn't much bigger back then. You can't do it. Good luck with that. It's impossible. It would take an insane miracle to do that. It's greater than growing back all your limbs, whatever it is. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible with God. So a miracle of you being saved, the wonder of you being saved and having all your sins washed away, that is a greater miracle. And that is by the power of God to be saved, to be reborn, trusting in Jesus Christ. And with God, this power is possible. God can do this wonder. We know that because he does it 200,000 times a day. 200,000 times a day, you say. How do I know that? Well, according to Lifeway, Christianity is growing at the same rate as the human population, which would also explain why it's the world's largest religion. That's also part of it. But there are, according to, if you, you can type in the human population growth, and you can watch the human population go up faster and faster on the internet. It's amazing what the internet can give us these days. And every day, there are 200,000 new people that come into existence. It grows every day. And so if Christianity is growing at the same size as the human population, then that means, yeah, brown, assuming they're all legit conversions, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people getting saved every single day. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are getting saved every single day. And so God is involved. It's not like, oh, well, you know, he's only working in the first century, and now we're just kind of like with his deist God, you know, kind of bet, bet Midler, God is watching us from a distance. Right? Like, you know, God, he's just kind of like, whatever. He's, he worked a lot in the first century. Now it's like, oh, you guys, you, on your own. That's not how it works. No, God is working wonderful things in our midst. He is changing lives, saving people to be born again, bringing them from death to life, and forgiving all of their sins, which we have all sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. And yet Jesus has taken on that infinite punishment in his person and work on the cross so that we would never be afraid of hell. We have no fear of condemnation. All our our sins are wiped away. That's why it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, by believing in Christ, we have peace with God. And that is the greatest wonder that we can have peace and recon reconciliation with a holy, infinitely just, and infinitely amazing God. People say, well, you know, I you know, can't believe in, in, in hell or these sort of things. You know, how could, how could a, a loving God do this? It's like people never ask the question, how can sinners be in the presence of an infinitely, maximally holy and just God, given that we sin every day. And people that never struggle with the problem of heaven, they always struggle with the problem of hell. It's interesting how that works. I think it's very keen into human psychology there. But that we have the gift of being loved and cherished in Christ forever and ever because of what Jesus did for us. That is the greatest miracle, the greatest wonder, and God is accomplishing it in our midst and throughout the world, thousands and thousands of times over every day. And so if you don't personally know Jesus Christ this morning, I'd ask that you reach out and place your faith on him. Trust in him for the forgiveness of all of your sins, and God will work this morning the greatest wonder in your life. Salvation, relationship, and eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord, forever and ever. Let us pray.